0: Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the director of the Program on Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center. Called the blogger who saved the economy by The Atlantic, he's credited with directly influencing a shift in Federal Reserve policy in 2012. Much of his work has been directed at uncovering the monetary policy failures behind the Great Depression and the 2008 financial crisis. He's written about these topics extensively in his books, The Metis Paradox, and most recently, The Money Illusion market monetarism, the great recession, and the future of monetary policy. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Sumner. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Firstly, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about yourself and your research for our viewers who may not be familiar.
1: So I um, studied at the University of Chicago back in the 1970s, got a PhD in economics. I taught for more than 30 years at Bentley University near Boston. Uh, More recently, I've worked at the Mercatus Center doing research on monetary policy and my own research interests lean towards monetary policy and also economic history. So my book, The Midas Paradox, was looking at uh, monetary policy during the Great uh, Depression of the 1930s. And my recent book focuses on the recession followed 2008 financial crisis.
0: All right, so to start off, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your research on the 2008 financial crisis. So you argue, contrary to widely held public belief, that although the subprime mortgage crisis in 2007 was definitely a factor, this was not the main cause behind the severe recession that followed, rather attributing that to failures in monetary stimulus. Now, many people would look at the plummeting nominal interest rates during this period and assume that the Fed was doing all it could to stimulate the economy. However, asset prices and real interest rates may tell a different story. So, could you please tell us a bit about your view of what the fed did wrong in this situation that worsened the recession and what should have been done differently
1: okay so most people do focus on interest rates as an indicator of fed policy but um most economists believe interest rates are actually not a reliable indicator of monetary policy for instance during a high inflation period when monetary policy is very expansionary interest rates are often very high and vice versa. So interest rates move around for reasons other than monetary policy. And what happened uh, after the housing bubble burst is that the so-called equilibrium or natural rate of interest fell sharply. And the Fed did not cut its policy rate quickly enough. So it was cutting interest rates gradually during late 2007 and 2008 but the equilibrium interest rate was falling much more rapidly. And as a result, monetary policy was effectively becoming more contractionary despite uh, the fed rate cuts. And to, to know that we need to look at other indicators. And uh, in my book, I list a wide variety of indicators from inflation forecasts in the bond market to commodity prices, stock prices, um nominal gdp growth there's all sorts of indicators that were indicating that monetary policy was actually quite contractionary especially in late 2008.
0: all right um so could you please tell us a bit more about um even though the interest rates were contractionary um what what else should have been done differently in this situation
1: Well, First of all, the interest rates should have been cut much uh, more sharply and earlier. Um, That might have been enough on its own to prevent a severe recession. If it wasn't enough, um, then the Fed should have done other actions like quantitative easing earlier than it did. But most importantly, the the single biggest mistake made by the Fed was to not do something like what we call level targeting. Um, Now, the term level targeting is a little misleading. It refers to the idea of coming back to the previous trend line for whatever variable you're targeting. So for instance, if you're targeting inflation at 2% per year and it drops to zero as it did during the great recession, then you wanna have a period of makeup or higher inflation to get back onto the previous trend line. My own preference is for level targeting of nominal GDP. So when that fell sharply, Uh, during the Great Recession, the Fed should have committed to coming back to the previous trend line. And that commitment is actually far more powerful than any concrete step like QE or cutting interest rates or those sorts of steps. Uh, Ultimately, the health of the economy depends on confidence that the the Fed will do whatever it takes to maintain that long-term trend rate of growth.
0: So looking back at the crisis, a combination of both stimulatory, monetary and fiscal policy was used. So unlike monetary policy, expansionary fiscal policy, namely cutting taxes and increasing government spending, tends to have a strong political component and thus is highly unpredictable and may not always be aligned with the Fed's goals. So nonetheless, in the end, they both influence the desired outcomes in terms of inflation, unemployment, and GDP growth. So Dr. Sumner, I wanted to ask you how the Fed is supposed to plan its policy actions towards certain targets, given the unpredictability of fiscal policy, both at a federal and state level that may cause deviations.
1: Well, what the Fed should try to do is offset the effects of fiscal policy. Um, I can give you an example. At the beginning of 2013, fiscal policy tightened very dramatically, a period of so-called austerity kicked in. And the budget deficit fell by about $500 billion in just a single year. Um, many economists forecast that this would push the economy into a recession or at least a slowdown. And in fact, growth actually picked up in 2013. And the reason it picked up is late in 2012, the Fed saw the fiscal austerity coming out of Congress and eased monetary policy. It adopted some fairly aggressive steps like another QE program and more aggressive forward guidance. And those steps uh, restored more bullish expectations for the economy. So the economy actually picked up despite that uh, fiscal austerity in 2013, So generally speaking, I believe that the Fed should be the institution responsible for assuring a proper level of nominal spending, sometimes called aggregate demand. And fiscal policy should just focus on uh, other tasks. You know, Congress may want to change tax rates or spending programs based on the merits of the individual initiatives, but they shouldn't use fiscal policy to try to control inflation or unemployment or those kind of variables.
0: So one of the issues here, um, especially in the United States, is that um, federal f- fiscal policy um, is, is controlled um, both at the federal and the state level. So states individually can cut taxes or raise spending or cut spending, um, all sorts of things, um, whereas um, monetary policy is done only at the federal level. So how does the Fed then offset um, the Fiscal policy when, you know, there's 50 different states pursuing 50 different fiscal policy agendas.
1: Well, the the state moves are somewhat more predictable. And, you know, you have the law of large numbers here where you can look at what states are doing. They're usually very uh, reactive. So states typically do not do fiscal policy that's aimed at influencing the macro economy. They're um, doing changes in spending that reflect their own budget situation and it's not that hard for the fed to adjust monetary policy to offset the effects of moves by the states the federal government is larger it's more um discretionary in the sense that it can adjust fiscal policy with the aim of affecting the macroeconomy but again the the federal government tends to move fairly slowly in most cases and the fed can move more quickly uh, than congress So it can take steps to offset any negative impact that fiscal policy will have on the economy. Now, it may be that the effect of fiscal policy is positive and the Fed may not want to offset that. But um, the the Fed usually can move more quickly than fiscal policymakers.
0: So now I wanted to talk to you a bit about monetary policy during the recession um, caused by the pandemic in early 2020. I think it's pretty safe to say that we've seen an incredibly fast recovery from the recession, um much more so than after the great depression or the 2008 financial crisis so i wanted to ask you whether the federal reserves response this time around was in any way an improvement and if anything should have been done differently um, this time as well in your view
1: well it was a it was a dramatic improvement um the fed this time around did pretty much what i thought they should have done back in 2008 if anything the only slight reservation I would have is perhaps they did a little bit too much. Our our problem today is actually not insufficient demand in the economy. If anything, the problem we face perhaps is a little bit excessive demand. And you're seeing that in some of the inflation numbers recently. But the job market, which was the big problem in the Great Recession, has bounced back much, much more rapidly. Uh, We're you know, roughly a year and a half into the COVID crisis, a little more than that, and unemployment's back down to 4.2% from a peak of over 14%. Just to put that in perspective, during the Great Recession, when we were uh, a year and a half or a year and 10 months into the Great Recession, unemployment was around 10%. It hadn't come down at all. So the Fed was much more uh, aggressive in terms of its expansionary monetary policy. Most importantly, it's commitment to come back to the previous trend line. Remember, I mentioned that when you have a miss where inflation drops, as it did in the Great Recession and also last year, you need to commit to come back to the previous trend line with a more aggressive policy. The Fed did this this time around. It's calling its policy flexible average inflation targeting. The idea is that inflation will average 2% in the long run, and as a result, the economy recovered much, much more quickly. Although, to be fair, some of the difference may be driven by the the nature of the uh, COVID pandemic, obviously. The fact that vaccines were available this year obviously helped the recovery as well. So uh, I can't say that all of the improvement in the job market was, was due to the Fed, but I do believe Fed policy was much more effective this time around than in the Great Recession.
0: All right. um, So I also wanted to ask you about the high levels of inflation that we've seen lately. So prices for virtually everything from gas to groceries to cars have ballooned. And there's been much debate about whether or not the inflation that we're seeing is transitory. So you've argued in the past that inflation is a poor indicator, given that it does not discriminate between supply and demand shocks and often has a substantial time lag, preferring to look at nominal GDP instead. So in a piece you wrote for The Hill in April, you said, quote, should we worry about inflation? Not yet. Now, almost eight months later, with persistent inflation, I wanted to ask if we have any more reason to be worried.
1: Yeah, I think we have some more reason now than than at that time. Um, the The problem we face <clears throat> there's really two parts to the problem, uh, as in everything in economics, it's both supply and demand that come into play here. So we have an appropriate level of demand for a normal economy. So the Fed has provided enough stimulus to produce relatively normal growth in nominal spending over the last two years. The reason we have high inflation is the supply side of the economy is severely strained. We have very much depressed employment. Many workers have not come back into the workforce. We have all sorts of problems related to the fact that our economy has suddenly shifted from service oriented to goods oriented. So there's been a big drop in the service sector, an enormous boom in the purchase of goods, physical goods. And that kind of adjustment is difficult to make in a short period of time. So we have all sorts of supply bottlenecks. So, there's two ways to think about the situation. You could say the level of demand is roughly appropriate, but we have very severely depressed supply. Or you could argue that given the supply problems we have, we actually have too much demand. And that's why we have the high inflation. So, we have this relatively high level of spending associated with severe supply constraints. It looks now like the COVID pandemic will be more long lasting than. I anticipated earlier in the year when the vaccines were being rolled out and the supply problems seem to be persisting. In addition, there's some evidence that the demand has gone from appropriate demand stimulus to excessive. And the Fed is recently dialing back its uh, monetary stimulus program, and I think will probably do so even more aggressively in the future because of the uh, relatively high rates of inflation this year. So... Yeah, I do think inflation is more of a problem. I don't think that it will be a, a major long-term problem, like in the 1960s and 70s. But for the next year or so, uh, I, I do think inflation will continue to be above the Fed's two percent target.
0: Okay. Um, I also wanted to talk to you a bit about the national debt and its future impact on interest rates. So um with the national debt approaching $30 trillion, um, well over our nominal GDP. Um I I wanted to ask if this is something that you could foresee um, having an impact on interest rates. Obviously, as the national debt goes up, the 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 chance that the united states defaults on its debt also does um go up and so um it it becomes a riskier the the united states becomes a riskier investment um for investors and so to compensate for that higher risk the interest rates would be pulled up so i wanted to ask um so far i don't think we've seen that Um, but if the national debt does keep rising um is that a threat to the, the um interest rates
1: well, it, that's hard to predict because interest rates have been on a 40-year downward trend. So um, you're right that other things equal a large national debt would push up interest rates somewhat. And the budget deficits are have been large and are probably going to remain large for the next few years. So other things equal the, the fiscal stimulus would push up interest rates. But this 40-year downtrend in interest rates, which is global, is a very powerful force. So, even though I do think interest rates are likely to go up, you know, somewhat over the next few years, I don't think they'll reach particularly high levels in this environment. Um, as far as the threat of default, there's that word can be used in different ways. I think it's very unlikely there would be an outright default in the sense that you know Greece experienced, where the U.S. simply didn't pay uh, back its Debts, its treasury bonds the bigger risk is that the debt becomes so large that the fed is pressured into inflating uh, essentially inflating away the debt by printing a lot of money Um, even that i think is a a fellow relatively modest risk at this point Um, And then the third risk is that the debt becomes so large that uh, much higher taxes are required in the future. In my view, that's the biggest risk and that's the reason that I've opposed the recent large budget deficits, or at least a part of them. Some fiscal stimulus was necessary in the COVID recession, but I do believe it was excessive. And um, in my view, the budget deficit is a problem but mostly in the sense that will lead to higher taxes in the future, not that it will lead to defaults on the debt.
0: So, I mean, even with higher taxes or, or cutting spending, the 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 level of the national deficit um, would be very, very difficult to get rid of. Um, so, I mean, at, at thirty thirty trillion 30, 30 trillion dollars, paying that back substantially um, whatsoever, I mean, you could tax everyone at, at exceptionally high rates um, and cut back on spending. Do you think even even at that point um, would be safe from um, an increasing national debt?
1: Well, I think it will become even larger. So, the national debt is uh, going to continue to increase. Now, it's a little over, uh, I believe, 100% of GDP. Um, But keep in mind that when interest rates are very low, close to zero, the interest burden on the debt is fairly small. So, if the interest rate is, say, 1%, on that debt, then interest burden on the debt is only about 1% of GDP. So, that's not a big problem for the federal government. Same thing if it's 2% interest. If the interest rates return to the level that we saw in the 1970s and 80s, then uh, the burden of the debt becomes much worse. And that's certainly a possibility. I mentioned a 40-year downtrend in interest rates, but taking an even longer view of history, interest rates go in cycles. So, it's possible there might be a upswing in interest rates at some point in the 21st century. So I can't say that there's no risk of default at all uh, or high inflation coming out of the budget deficits. Um but you know based on what I'm currently seeing I think the biggest risk is higher taxes. So I think that the the debt won't actually be paid off in total it'll be rolled over as bonds mature they'll issue new treasury bonds. And the size of the national debt will probably stay at more than 100% of GDP. But for the time being, the Fed can finance that relatively easily at low interest rates. So I'm, I'm reluctant to predict a crisis in the near future because I just don't see anything that would cause interest rates to rise sharply. Uh, to go back to that 40-year downtrend, almost every explanation that has been offered for why interest rates have been trending down for 40 years is a trend that's still in place, um, you know, demographic changes, higher savings rates in Asia, et cetera. There's all sorts of factors have been cited that the uh, move from an industrial economy to an information economy. And so it's hard for me to see how we would go back to the sort of interest rates that were more typical in the 20th century, but it could happen. Happen, obviously.
0: All right, so finally, I wanted to ask you about political influences on the Federal Reserve. So although the Federal Reserve in theory is supposed to act independently, free from any political influences, many have suggested that it's been subjected to political pressure and its decision to keep interest rates low recently. So in your view, from what you've seen, is the Fed truly above political influence? Um,
1: I think it partly depends how you define political influence. So, for instance, uh, when uh, President Trump pressured Jay Powell to cut interest rates, um, I think the Fed sort of resisted that pressure, but that pressure was really pretty much just coming from President Trump. It wasn't widespread political pressure. If we were to face a situation in the future where large majorities of the political establishment, maybe in both parties, favored a more expansionary monetary policy to to bail out the national debt in some sense, that sort of political pressure would be difficult for the Fed to um, resist. So if it's just um, a single individual, even a president making a recommendation to the Fed, I do think they're able to resist those kinds of political pressures. Uh, If the entire political establishment pressures the Fed to monetize the national debt, then I think that would be something that the Fed would have trouble resisting.
0: So. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. So thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Economics Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.